Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our prayer lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Spiritual reading can be challenging for many Catholics, so this podcast is here to help. Each season, we'll read through a great work, unpack its timeless wisdom, and encourage you with practical tips for the pursuit of holiness. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. To get your copy of the book and download the reading plan for this season, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text INTRO to 33777. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Today is day one. We'll be reading part one on the councils and exercises, chapters one through three, pages 23 through 33, in the Ascension edition of the book. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. You'll see at the beginning of the book that St. Francis de Sales is especially motivated to get the principles right. I remember a story that my mother told me. I guess it's not a story. I guess it's an anecdote. But in St. Louis, when they were building the gateway arch, they had to be super precise because they built up from the two foundations. And she said, or her teacher told her, that if they had been wrong by the size of a, like, 12-point font punctuation mark on one of those two foundations, that when they got to the top, the arch would not have met, but the two sides would have passed each other without making contact. So, for us, it's super important to get things right at the beginning, so that way we don't have to deal with big problems down the road. So, the principle that we're talking about here is true devotion, and we have to know what true devotion is in order to cultivate it well. So, we're going to end up at the Council of St. Francis de Sales, making sure to start with God and not with, you know, vain desires and fanciful notions. So, before we get into the reading, let's say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Grant us grace, O merciful God, to desire ardently all that is pleasing to thee, to examine it prudently, to acknowledge it truthfully, and to accomplish it perfectly, for the praise and glory of thy name, who live and reign forever and ever, amen. Chapter 1. What is true devotion to God? My dearest Philothea, you aspire to devotion. Why? Because you are a Christian and therefore know well that devotion is a virtue that is immensely pleasing to the Divine Majesty. However, we also know that small mistakes committed at the beginning of any work grow with the passage of time, in the end becoming nearly irreparable. Therefore, before all else you must understand the nature of the virtue of devotion. Indeed, since there is only one true kind of devotion and many false and vain forms of devotion, if you cannot discern the true form, you may well mistake the false for the true and amuse yourself with some devotion that is brash and superstitious. In his paintings, Aurelius would adorn the faces of the people pictured there by placing upon them features that he drew from memories of the women whom he had loved. So too, we all paint the picture of devotion in line with our own passions and imaginings. One man is given to fasting, and thus, despite the fact that his heart is filled with anger, he believes that he is very devout so long as he fasts. Although scrupulously careful with his tongue as he dips it into wine, or even water, ever striving to maintain the virtue of temperance, he experiences no hesitation when he allows the same tongue to plunge deeply into his neighbor's blood through slander and calumny. Another man believes that he is devout because he fills each of his days with many prayers despite the fact that, when he then turns to his servants and neighbors, his tongue finds new employment, full of inappropriate, arrogant, and hurtful words. 
A third man is ready to open his wallet in order to give alms to the poor. But what about forgiveness for his enemies? Here we find his heart tight shut. Then yet another man will readily forgive his enemies but never pay his bills until the law forces him to do so. All too often such people are believed to be devout, but they in no way deserve this title. The servants of Saul sought David at his house. Michal put a statue into his bed and covered it with David's clothes, leading Saul's men to believe that David was there, sick and asleep in bed. See 1 Samuel 19, verses 11-16. through 16. Thus, many men and women clothe themselves with external practices that belong to devotion, and the world believes they are truly devout and spiritual people, but in truth they are nothing but images and shadows of devotion. True and living devotion, O Philotheia, presupposes the love of God, or better still, it is nothing other than true love of God. But it is not just any kind of love. Inasmuch as the divine love adorns our souls, it is called grace, for it makes us pleasing to the divine majesty. Inasmuch as this love gives us the strength to do what is good, it is called charity. However, when it has become so perfect that it not only enables us to do what is good, but enables us to do so with great care, frequently and promptly, then we call it devotion. Ostriches never fly. When hens take to wing, they are weighed down, flying low to the ground, indeed doing so only on occasion. But eagles, doves, and swallows often spread their wings and swiftly take flight high in the air. Similarly, sinners do not fly toward God. All their activity is earthbound and dedicated to earthly goals. Good people who are not yet devout take wing toward God through their good deeds, but do so only now and then, slowly, and weighed down with their cares for other things. But devout men and women often and promptly soar in the heights toward God. In other words, devotion is a kind of spiritual agility and vigor, by which charity deploys its activity within us, or, we may also say, by which we act through this charity. Indeed, since charity enables us to fulfill always and everywhere God's commands, so too devotion enables us to do so readily and with diligence. Therefore, if someone does not observe all of God's commands, he or she cannot be called either good or devout, for in order to be good, such a person must have charity, and in order to be devout, he or she must have beyond charity a great vigor and readiness to perform deeds flowing from this divine love. Now, given that devotion is a kind of eminent degree of charity, it not only makes us prompt, active, and diligent in observing all of God's commandments, but beyond that, it impels us to perform, readily and with delight, as many good deeds as we can, even if they are not commanded, but are only counsels or some sort of inspiration from God. Indeed, the sinner who was only recently healed of his sin is like someone who was only yesterday cured of some illness, walking as much as is necessary, though with a slow and heavy step. So too, the newly healed sinner slowly plods along, following God's commands as he or she trudges forward toward devotion. Then, becoming truly devout, he is like a man fully healed. No longer does he merely walk, he runs and leaps along the way of God's commandments. See Psalm 119.32. And further still, he finds a new course on which to run, now hastening upon the paths of heavenly counsels and inspirations. In the end, charity and devotion differ no more than do flame and fire. For charity is a spiritual fire, and when its flames become blazing hot, it is called devotion. Thus, devotion adds nothing to the fire of charity except the blazing heat that makes charity prompt, active, and diligent, not only in the observance of God's commandments, but also in the practice of heavenly counsels and inspirations. Chapter 2. The Nature and Excellence of Devotion As they approached the borders of the Promised Land, some among the Israelites discouraged their fellow countrymen from entering it. 
telling them that it was, quote, a land that devours its inhabitants, end quote, Numbers 13.32, meaning that the air there was so unwholesome that one could scarcely survive there for long, and also that the natives were of such great stature that they ate other men like grasshoppers. So too, my dear Philothea, the world strives with all its strength to paint a defamatory picture of the devout person, distressed, sorrowful, and gloomy in countenance. It declares that devotion gives birth to a melancholic spirit and an antisocial temperament. However, like Joshua and Caleb, who vigorously responded that the promised land was not only good and beautiful, but also that it could indeed be acquired with ready ease and agreeably, so too the Holy Spirit, upon the lips of all the saints and our Savior in his very own words, assures us that a devout life is easy, delightful, and desirable. Looking upon devout Christians, what a sight the world sees in these men and women, fasting, praying, suffering injuries, serving the sick, giving to the poor, keeping watch, controlling their anger, repressing and stifling their passions, depriving themselves of sensual pleasures, and so many other acts that in themselves seem so harsh and rigorous. But the world lacks the eye to see the interior reality of devotion, which warms this seemingly harsh exterior and renders it agreeable, pleasant, and easy for the devout Christian. Consider the bees upon time. On this herb they find a very bitter juice, but through their labors they transform it into honey. It is their very nature to do so. O worldly men and women, yes, indeed, devout souls find much bitterness in these exercises of mortification. But as they perform them, they convert this bitterness into sweetness and delight. Fire, flames, torturous racks, and swords, through their devotion, the martyrs thought all this to be flowers and perfumes. Therefore, if devotion can make sweet even the harshest of torments, including death itself, in what way will its power be limited when it inspires our virtuous actions? Sugar sweetens unripe fruits and tempers the harshness and unwholesomeness of those which are overripe. Devotion is the true spiritual sugar, which removes bitterness from mortification and ensures that consolation does not become unwholesome. Through devotion, the poor man is not discontent with his state and the rich man is not overly solicitous in his business. It removes desolation from the heart of the oppressed and prevents those who are privileged from becoming insolent. With devotion in his heart, the lonely man is not sad and those who are favored with companions nonetheless do not fall into decadence. In the cold of winter, it is a fire, and in the summer heat, it refreshes like the dew. It knows how to live with abundance and how to suffer want. Honor or contempt, it knows well how to make both of these profitable. With nearly equal cheer, it entertains pleasure and pain. In short, it fills our soul with a wonderful sweetness. Contemplate now Jacob's Ladder, Genesis 28:12, for it presents us with the true portrait of the devout life. The two sides of this ladder, into which the rungs are placed, represent prayer, beseeching God's love, and the sacraments that confer this very love. The rungs are the different degrees of charity by which we advance from virtue to virtue, descending by way of action, coming to the aid and support of our neighbor, ascending by way of contemplation, by which we enter into loving union with God. Now, I beseech you, consider the men and women on this ladder. They are either humans with angelic hearts or angels with human bodies. They are not young, but they have all the appearance of youthful vitality, for they are filled with vigor and spiritual agility. Through their holy prayer, they have wings to soar upward to God, but with their feet, they walk alongside their fellow men and women, sharing their life with a holy and friendly gait. Their faces are beautiful and cheerful, for they receive all things with sweetness and contentment. Their legs, arms, and heads are uncovered, for their thoughts, affections, and actions are motivated by only one aim, to please God. The remainder of their body is covered, though only with a beautiful and light robe, 
showing us that they do make use of the world and of worldly things, though doing so only with purity and uprightness, with each man and woman taking only what is needed for his or her particular walk of life. Such are devout Christian men and women. Trust my words, dear Philothea. Devotion is the pleasure of pleasures and the queen of virtues. It is the perfection of charity, the cream that rises to the top of the milk of the divine love, the flower blooming upon the stem of charity, the shining light reflecting off the precious stone of the love of God. Indeed, if charity might be likened to a balm, devotion is its fragrance. Indeed, the sweet fragrance that brings comfort to men and women and joy to the angels. Chapter 3. Devotion is suitable to all kinds of vocations and professions. When he created all things, God commanded the plants to bring forth their fruits, each one according to its kind. So too he commands Christians who are the living plants of his church to bring forth their fruits of devotion, each man and woman according to his or her own particular conditions of life and vocation. The gentleman and the workman, the servant and the prince, the widow, the maiden, and the married woman, each one's life will be marked by a different way of practicing devotion. But, moreover, it must also be accommodated to the capacities, employment, and obligations of each person in particular. My dear Philothea, would it be fitting for a bishop to desire to live the life of a Carthusian, separate from the world in monastic prayer, or for married men and women to live like Capuchins, ever ready to beg for the money they need for each day, or for the artisan to spend all this time in church like a monk, or for someone in religious vows to live in that ever-ready state of solicitude in the service of his neighbor like a bishop? Would not such devotion be ridiculous, unreasonable, and insupportable? Nonetheless, how common is this fault? The world does not discriminate, or perhaps does not wish to do so, between devotion and the indiscretion of those who claim to be devout. Rather, it critiques and murmurs at the thought of devotion, when what it should do is blame these disorders. No, Philothea, devotion, when true, injures nothing. It makes all things perfect. When it runs counter to anyone's rightful vocation, then such devotion most assuredly is false. As Aristotle once remarked, the bee gathers honey from flowers without hurting them, leaving them as whole and fresh as it found them. But true devotion is even better still. Not only does it not injure any kind of calling or business, rather to the contrary, it adorns them and adds to their luster. If you throw precious stones into honey, they will become more radiant still, each according to its own unique color. Likewise, all men and women will live their vocations more fully when they join devotion to it. With such devotion in one's heart, Household cares are filled with peace and tranquility. Husbands and wives love each other more genuinely. The prince serves his realm more faithfully, and every sort of occupation becomes easy and pleasant. It is an error, nay, a heresy, to wish to banish the devout life from the ranks of soldiers, the shops of tradesmen, the courts of princes, or the households of married men and women. Yes, Philothea, it is true that devotion that is purely contemplative, monastic, or religious does not belong to these walks of life. However, in addition to these three sorts of devotion— there are various other forms that are suited to the particular perfection of those who live in the midst of the world. Consider the Old Testament witnesses to this fact. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David, Job, Tobias, Sarah, Rebekah, and Judith. And in the age of the New Covenant, what a great host of names there are as well. St. Joseph, Lydia, and St. Crispin, all perfectly devout plying their trades. St. Anne, St. Martha, St. Monica, Aquila, Priscilla, devout in the midst of their household duties. Cornelius, St. Sebastian, St. Morris, as soldiers. Constantine, Helen, St. Louis, St. Amadeus, and St. Edward, all upon their thrones. Indeed, many have lost perfection in solitude, which nonetheless is so favorable for the cultivation of perfection, while others have preserved such perfection in the midst of the world's company, which seems so little to favor its growth. 
As St. Gregor the Great remarked, Lot, who was so chaste while living in the midst of the city, defiled himself while in solitude after leaving Sodom. See Genesis 19, verses 30-38. But wherever we find ourselves, we can and must aspire to Christian perfection. So in these first three chapters, we have some of the most important teachings on what devotion means and how we can begin to cultivate devotion. St. Francis starts with this comparison between devotion and charity. Perhaps you have heard charity uh, extolled in Christian conversations in the sacred scriptures and in the writings of the saints. We know that charity just is the very love of God poured into our hearts, and charity is sometimes referred to as the very substance of Christian perfection. So if you want to be a saint, grow in charity. But he turns to devotion and says that devotion is kind of like a promptness or a willingness to our charity. It's what gives us a kind of verve in our spiritual life and makes it easier for us you know, to live a life of prayer and of sacrament and all the other things that go with it. So beginning then with this notion or this reality uh, of devotion, Father Jacob Bertrand, your thoughts on how we relate these two virtues and just beyond that, how we begin this life of true devotion. Yeah, I think for for a lot of us who are wanting to take seriously the spiritual life or prayer or a relationship with Christ or living the faith or you know however we want to describe it, uh, part of part of the the problem that we face is I want this, but how do I do it? Um, and as as you were explaining, Father Gary, you know, charity is the heart of the Christian life. Saint Paul tells us, you know, this in in his famous passage on the the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and above all of these is love, love, charity, same thing in these sort of conversations. So as you said, if you want to be a saint, pursue charity, pursue love, love of God and love of neighbor. Fine, great, that's all, that's all, I'm on board. Okay, but how do I do it? And here is here here we have an instruction for that, and and the instruction for that is living a life of devotion, um, of, of sort of being prompted to to live a life of charity through devotion. So as as we you know start in on this book by Saint Francis de Sales and in our conversations about what he's writing, um, we should think of it in those terms. You know, Christian life is about charity. A life of devotion is how we pursue charity, how we pursue Christ. So um, it's sort of the tool, as it were. So we'll look at how that works, how that doesn't work, different things to help devotion, different things to avoid in pursuing devotion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's what's at hand. So hopefully helpful in that. Indeed. Um, so when he talks about devotion, he talks about devotion as kind of like, you know, giving your heart, or we might say in language that's a little more philosophical, you know, giving your will, which is the seat of choice. So we say that that's real significant because the choice is what, like the choices that we make kind of define us as persons. So when we choose to know something, when we choose to love something, when we choose to engage with our emotions or to regulate our emotions uh, in light of some whatever difficult situation or whatever it might be. All right, that's, that's how we make a determination of who we are as people, like our identity, and then what we're for, which is to say our mission in life. So this virtue of devotion, which shapes our choice and makes us prompt, it makes us willing, it makes us, you know, wholly given to God in the midst of the situation is a way of, you know, giving the whole person. Because since choice is at the root of all that we do and devotion, you know, is at work in our choice, it has a way of giving us whole and entire to God in the midst of whether it be great, exalted spiritual journeys or more humble, modest kind of everyday things. So having described devotion, then 
St. Francis de Sales turns to the place that mortification occupies in our life of devotion. And that word mortification might be a little bit intimidating. It comes from the word for death, a kind of death that we do unto ourselves, which is to say we put to death lower desires or we rein in lower desires. So that way they don't distract us from or overwhelm our higher desires. So if your desire for food and drink and sexual intercourse is you know, so intense that you can't think about prayer and sacrament and other things besides, then that's a problem. So, you know, we have to practice a little bit of mortification, or we might just say penance in order to rein rein that in. Um, So turning then to the place of mortification in the devout life, uh, Father Jacob Bertrand, your thoughts on how we kind of manage or or balance this? Thought one, terrifying. <laughs> right? Like when you hear that word mortification or mortify your flesh or penance, um, all of these, that that whole kind of world and notion is is kind of an uncomfortable one, maybe a terrifying one, one that I don't know. It's always easy to kind of criticize contemporary culture. Um, but living in our in our culture and world that's so kind of focused on on pleasure and these kind of things, it's it's foreign, scary, whatever. Um, but if we think about it in in terms of what it actually represents and what it actually presents to us for our living and living with Christ, it's actually it's it's not all that terrible. Maybe I guess um, it's really about you know the devout life in the life of charity is about having our life ordered to God. Now, when we talk about order and disorder, sometimes the, those might people might not be terribly comfortable with those words, but they're helpful because we're, we're, we're trying to, to put our life by God's grace through a life of devotion in proper order so that we can pursue God easily and readily so that we can share in divine life. Truth be told, if we look at our own lives, I know I can for myself, you know, I have, there are things in my life that distract me from that, things that are disordered or out of that order. So a life of mortification, as Father Gregory was des- describing, is is just that. It helps put the pieces in a proper sort of setting and a proper order so as to pursue God above all else, but also, and this is a really, I think, important thing, but also, um, in addition to pursuing God above all else, enjoy other things in life. So as Father Gregory was saying, like our a desire for food, drink, and sex might be might be the one that's triumphing in our life. That doesn't, but you know, having a more uh, sort of penitential life to help order those doesn't mean we can no longer enjoy those in the proper context. Of course, we can, but it's just a putting things together in the pursuit of in the pursuit of God, and these mortifications help that they help write us on on the path. And I think part of the reason why mortification or penance seems intimidating to us at the beginning of this devout life is because, yeah, we just think about the difficulty or we just think about how contrary it is to our sensibilities. It's like, yeah, why would I give up, you know, eating between meals when it's so delightful to have a snack at 1030 a.m.? Or like, why would I limit my intake of alcohol when it's so delightful to have a few beers with a friend? Um, Ultimately, what St. Francis of Sales is trying to teach in these chapters is that it's a joy if we can see it in light of our devout pursuit. So if you can see these mortifications as assisting you, as aiding you in your spiritual life, then they become easier to undertake. Not necessarily easy, easy, right? But it becomes more straightforward. It's like, okay, my goal is God. And in order to have God, I have to be wholly his and he wholly mine. And there's some division in my heart. I need to work out the details of that division by some mortification or penance okay, I can do this because I know how good the goal is. I know how very worth it that goal is. And if it requires some, you know, heavy lifting of me, well, amen, so be it. So I think that it's, he's trying to commend it to us rather than intimidate us uh, with the prospect of the mortification which might lie in store. So I hope that 
you're not too terribly intimidated, listener, by this description. And uh, certainly as we go forward in the book, it'll have many helpful hints or many helpful tips for us so that we can incorporate these practices into our life. But um, as we round out this first episode, uh, let's touch on a theme that's very precious to St. Francis de Sales. And I know that, Father Jacob Bertrand, you're very passionate about this as well. But this idea that devotion is for everyone, not just for a spiritual elite, okay? It's not just something reserved to cardinals, bishops, whatever, religious or whomever. This is something for all baptized Christians. So maybe say a word about that. Yeah, too often the 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 what the goods the great things in the spiritual life seem like they're on offer for other people whether it's in the way that father gregory just described that you know the heights of holiness are reserved for sort of the spiritual elite or even are like in a in a more i don't know routine kind of um like trap of comparison that when we look at other people in the pews of the church well they look like they have everything together and they can sit through a whole whole, holy hour and but i can't i can't do any of these things so it must not be for me um I would say cross that out of your mind immediately. Immediately, None of those things are true. In fact, in virtue of your baptism, the graces that you received when you were baptized, you are definitely, most assuredly, this is not because I'm saying it, it's because Christ says it, are called to share in divine life, to be friends with God. And like, wow, that's, that's incredible. That can occupy your prayer and contemplation for like the rest of your life. That's an amazing offer. That's not, it's not just for the spiritual elite and therefore devotion, remember the tool or the path by which we pursue this life, this life of charity is also on offer for you. Um, it's not just for the spiritual elite. So as we talk more about this, about the life of devotion, aided by a life of penance and mortification and other tools and other things, I would say don't be intimidated or overwhelmed, but uh, you know, open yourself up to enter into, in, into this into this relationship with Christ. Because above all, it's not you in the driver's seat. It's Christ, and he invites you to come with. So allow him to work. You know, be open to new ways that he might be working or new kind of practices in the tradition of our faith that might help you in 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 pursuing Christ. Um, because in the end, he wants you. He desires you. He wants you to be holy and to share in his life. So there's the, that's it. That's the bottom line, and that's a theme we're going to be returning to throughout this series throughout this these episodes and one that you should return to constantly in your own life. And I think that, yeah, for some of us, there's a temptation to compare our lives to the lives of other Christians, you know, compare our life to that of the Blessed Virgin Mary or St. Joseph or St. Therese. And it seems like the graces given to us are so much less, right? They're, they're modest or humble by comparison. Well, that may be the case, but that's not to say that God is not doing something great and glorious in our lives. Uh, and the reason that we have assurance of that is there's no other way by which to account for the fact that he created you and redeemed you, right? Because we're extra, right? We don't add anything to God. We don't supply for any lack or need on his part, right? We're extra. We're an expression. We're a manifestation and a communication of the divine goodness. And we're meant to testify to this present evil age, as St. Paul calls the world in the letter to the Galatians, that God is good, you know, that God is who he says he is. So we are a kind of particular, personal, unique manifestation and communication of that divine life. So we know, you know, by virtue of the testimony of creation and redemption, that we are made to a good purpose. And yeah, the gifts given to us might be simple, humble, modest, whatever, but provided that we cooperate with those graces, we consent to those graces, they'll be made glorious. They'll be made great. Uh, so you can think here of the parable of the talents. One is given five, another two, another one. 
The one who makes good on his five gets another five. The one who makes good on his two gets another two. The one who receives the one, uh, he compares. Well, one can speculate as to what he does, but I speculate that he compared his gifts to those around him. And then he didn't make good on his one talent. He buried it in a napkin. And the Lord condemns him not because, you know, he wanted that extra talent back, but because, you know, like, recognize the good gift that I have given you and the reason for which I have given you this good gift and and make good on it because that's what I desire to do in and through your life. So even if your vocation is to love these beautiful little children whom God has given you and not to go beyond your postal code, that's that's awesome. You know, that's a glorious thing. If your vocation is to be a kind bank teller and to change the day of person after person who comes through, who has been treated roughly by all other, you know, service employees that he or she has encountered throughout the course of the day. I mean, amen. So be it. That's awesome. So I think that it's for us in the context of, you know, this book to recognize the gifts that God is giving us and then to make good on them because when we do, it's great and glorious. So that is it for today. Uh, Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts if you haven't yet. Uh, to download the reading plan, which maps out for you, you know, step by step, the different sections that we'll be going through with each episode. And also to support the production of this podcast, please visit ascensionpress.com slash Catholic Classics. All right. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>